Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Good morning, everybody. Remain standing for the reading of God's word this morning. And I will be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 1 through 18. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. Thus concludes the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, as we've been studying the the book of Acts, last week we went um, and saw um, Paul in the the city of Athens, which is the, the center of Greek philosophy. And so... He, um, he went there because he needed a little bit of R&R, a little rest and relaxation, but Paul could not not give the gospel out. And so he saw all the idols. He saw even an idol to the unknown God, and he was just compelled. He was disturbed within him when he saw this and knew that the people needed to hear the gospel. So he began to proclaim the gospel not only in the synagogue but also in the marketplace, and while he's in the marketplace, the philosophers who abounded in Athens heard him and brought him, dragged him, took him, whichever way you want to look at it, brought him into Areopagus, the Areopagus, where they might hear more about this Jesus and Anastasia, who again, whether they saw them as God and goddess or what, we don't know, but at the end when they finally figured out that Jesus was the Messiah for the Jews, and that Anastasia literally was the resurrection from the dead, they considered him a madman, right? But we're told at the end of that interaction there at the Areopagus, the Areopagus that um, 
Many didn't believe, but some did believe. And I think that's the note that we want to drive on with, because now at this point, Paul is still tired. He's still feeling beaten. If you remember, there was a discussion at the end about what all maybe transpired in the Areopagus at that moment, whether he was shouted down, whether he bailed out, whatever the point is, that, that there was, he was in the middle of these philosophers, these pagans, and they were not a welcoming group. And so I think Paul just kind of bailed a little bit on the message, whether it's because he was being shouted down, whether it's because of other things, doesn't matter. He was a normal guy. And I think as a normal guy standing there, you know, we all tend to do what sometimes? Bail out. Make sense? And it's okay. God chooses to put the failures of his servants in his word. I think of Abraham a lot. Abraham was called by God, by name, to go into a land that he was going to show him. And Abraham did what? He went. I can't imagine that. Rodney, I want you to follow me. I want you to go to the land I'm going to show you. Well, where do you want me to go, God? I'm not going to tell you, Rodney. I just want you to get an I-20 and head east. I'll let you know when you're there. Uh, well, Lord, there's a lot of places along I-20 that I may not want to go. Right? Am I right? I mean, we think about that. I mean, you know, but Abram didn't do that. He got, you know, on his camel, if you would, and he headed to the land that God was going to show him. He was a faith, man of faith, yes? But yet when he goes down to Egypt, what does he do? He lies about his wife because he's fearful of his, of his own neck. And he says, hey, tell them that you're my sister. And she's taken. God records those things. It's okay. It's really okay. Because God want, I think, I believe strongly that God wants us to understand, as Paul declared to the Corinthians, where we're going to see him coming to the Corinthians in a moment, but in his first epistle to them, that God chooses the weak things of the world. God chooses the things that are not in order to confound those who think that they're strong and think that they're something. Does that make sense? And so Paul considered himself as the chief of all sinners. He considered himself as not being eloquent of speech. So Paul never made himself to be the super Christian that sometimes we make him to be. If, that, if, that, if you track with me on that one, right? So Paul is still weak. He's still struggling, in my viewpoint, okay? And from here then, he leaves Athens. He's supposed to be hanging out in Athens. Think about this, till when? Anybody remember? How long is he supposed to be in Athens? Mm, details are important. Till Silas and Timothy show up. Because he said, he sent for them and said, you know, bring them to Athens to join me. But he's done in Athens. At this moment, he's done in Athens, and he leaves. And so he travels down... 40 miles down the road to a city called Corinth. Now, in the past, we have been spending a lot of time on just a few hours, a few days, a few weeks. Today, our passage covers at least 18 months. 18 months. So these 18 verses, Luke just is going to give us the, the highlights. But everything we talk about now is all going to happen, if you would, in Corinth. And so the first thing you want to ask yourself as you're studying this, right, and as you're looking at it, is where is Corinth? What is Corinth, right? That you should ask that question. So go ahead and ask yourself that question right now, even if you haven't asked it already. Where's Corinth? What about Corinth? Okay, I'm glad you asked the question. So let's talk about it first, okay? First, let's talk about its location, okay? Corinth sat on the isthmus, okay? 
say that 10 times fast. <laughs> yeah, the Ithmith. That's exactly, I'm only going to say it once, and I'm going to leave it there. Okay? Because um, they're going to have the Ithmian games, too. And that's really kind of fun, too. Anyways, but they sat on, it sat on the Ithmith between the northern part of Greece and the southern part of Greece. Okay? And so here we go. It's back into where we are here, but I've expanded this map a little bit so that we have Rome and, and all the way over. And so if you can see up on the map where it sits, there's this little piece of land um, that, that goes between the northern part of Greece and the southern part, and Corinth sat right there. So all the trade that came from the north to the south and from the south to the north had to go through Corinth. But not only that, being on that little isthmus, we're going to see this in a moment, they actually made a place to drag ships across that little bitty six miles so that they could go, they didn't have to come out into the Mediterranean Sea, and they would actually travel then from east to west and west to east through the city of Corinth, and they would literally drag their ship. So here's a picture of that, that they, how they would drag the ship. They actually had a, a little place there, and they would bring the ship up to it, and they would have a bunch of you know, donkeys, not really, but thinking, you know, the Erie Canal kind of concept, you know. We can kind of picture that in our own day. And they would literally drag the ship, put it on rollers, and, and drag it across the land and put it in on the opposite side, okay? Today, it is a, an actual canal, okay? They continue to do it, and they, they dug it out, and so there's actually a canal that goes across there right now so that the shipping industry doesn't, again, have to go out into the turbulent waters of the Mediterranean. They can stick within the little the, the havens, if you would, okay? And so that's where Corinth is at, okay? And it, it's, it's right on in this area. And um, like down in here is going to be the areas that we talk about, okay? Um, actually, down in here, okay, is the, the historical parts, okay? So, so it's sat at the center of a lot of cultural diversity, if you would, okay? Um, let me finish that previous comment. Because of the fact that where it's sat, there are a lot of international flavors in Corinth, okay? A lot of people established themselves there because of the commerce, okay? So it was really a melting pot, okay? And so it really was the crossroads of culture um, in, in the Grecian world, okay? But it was also full of massive idolatry, okay? And so what you see right here, that's the, um, uh, the Temple of Apollos, okay? And it, it sat right there, but this place was more important, Kind of interesting, you know, we got the Temple of Apollos there. But this was the Acro Corinth, okay? And on top of the Acro Corinth, there was the worship of Aphrodite. It was something that was very special to Corinth, okay? Um, and we could go into the Oracle Delphi, which we talked about weeks ago, okay? And it has an application coming over in here as well. But here, the, the, um, with the, the worship of Aphrodite, they, they had, it was a sex cult. It was, um, and so, fertility cult. And so they would have their temple prostitutes, okay? And the temple prostitutes would come down into the land, okay? And so here you have the uh, Agora, and so coming back over here, more of the digs, and so they would, the, the city was there. And so it became such, so bad that with the prostitution and everything going on in there, that um, any sexual promiscuity in the, the world wound up being called Corinthianizing. And so um, Plato, that's what's underneath there is the word Plato, Plato is the one who coined that phrase. And so for all around the, in the Grecian world, when, when there was all this sexual promiscuity, promiscuity, they would just call it, they were Corinthianizing. That's how bad it was. That's what they got to be known as. Okay? But they also then had this um, Dionysian and Bacchic frenzies that were going on as a result of the, the cult of Aphrodite that the women, the, the prostitutes and women worshipers, 
would be filled with the gods. And they would go and they would begin to speak with babblings, um, in frenzy babblings, uh, ecstatic utterances. Okay? So when you read 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, understand that's what Paul's referring to in this place. Okay? So a lot of times when we talk about the babbling and the tongues and that kind of stuff, that's not what happened in Pentecost. Pentecost, they spoke foreign languages. Paul's dealing with, and he only talks to the Corinthians about, he doesn't talk to the Ephesians about this, he doesn't talk to the Thessalonians about this, he doesn't talk to the Galatians about this. The only city that he writes to and talks about this is with Corinth. And that's because it was Corinth which was the center of this cult. And that's what they would do. They would have these babblings, these, these utterances, and they were filled with spirits. We understand behind, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, behind every idol is a demon. Okay? So, you, so again, when you read the book of 1 Corinthians, I challenge you to go back and do some historical understanding, the, the milieu of what Paul is writing about. I don't have time to do that. We're not going through the book of Corinthians right now. But you need to understand as we go, then we talk about all this, is, this is what's going on in Corinth. It really is the, um, a pagan culture. It's the, it's the crossroads of all cultures coming together. Okay? But they have this pagan influence, which they're sending out then into the world. Okay? such that you know, the rather parts of the world refer to them, Corinthianizing and that kind of stuff. So they're well known. And so that one is by Euripides, um, who talks about this as well. So that's Corinth. So as he enters into Corinth, his entrance into Corinth, that's what he's walking into. Okay? He's walking into that, again, as a what? I think a weakened man. One who's been beaten, literally, physically beaten, right? One who is, is struggling because of, 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 of all of these battles he's had, right? And so he walks in, and where's the first place he goes? Well, he's going to go to the, the synagogues, where he always goes. And there, with his Jew, in his Jewish companions, he finds Priscilla and Aquila, or Aquila, um, Aquila and, uh, who were tent makers. And Paul, we're told, joins with them, and he becomes a tent maker. So his employment, okay, he becomes a, a tent maker. And so when you read 2 Timothy 2.15, which if you've ever done a wanna, that's their key verse, right? Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, uh, rightly dividing the word of God. I think I missed something in there, though. Okay? A workman who does not need to be ashamed, but anyways, rightly dividing the word of truth. So that rightly dividing is a term for a seamstress. As a tent maker, he would want to make sure that he was cutting things properly so that when you bring them back together again, you know, they don't look like this. You know, so like if your wife is making a suit coat, right, and she flips around the, the arms, you kind of look, you know, how do you like it? I love it, baby. I don't have another coat like this at all. And so, um, and so the reality is it's important to make sure there's a pattern, right? Well, that's what he's talking about in that pass, passage as well. So he was, a, he was a tent maker. He worked. He worked with his hands, okay? We're going to talk about that at, toward the end of the message, um, the importance of that, okay? But he, he worked with his hands because he, when he got there, think about this, he has no way to support himself. He's an itinerant preacher, okay? And whatever money he had is probably gone. So the first thing he does when he goes to Corinth is he gets a job. And so this has always been important for me. So again, when we planted this church, it wasn't my goal to plant this church. It really wasn't, okay? And so some of you guys who were there, Steve, were there. We had the little Bible studies on Saturday nights, and they just kind of worked that way, right? And it worked into this. 
But I, and I don't mean this as a, yay, Bob. But for real, I had five jobs at one time when we started this, okay? And why? Because it's good to have beans on the table. It's good to pay the light bill. It's good to pay the water bill. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, that's okay. Well, there's no difference, okay? Why do you, why do you work? Because you want to work. Well, yeah, God designed you to work. But the reality is the reason you work is so you can pay the bills. So you can eat. That's exactly right, okay? It's no different back then. Okay, so he had, a, he had to get a job. He did get a job, and he found one with, with Priscilla and Aquila. But what is fun to me is this influence that we see coming through this, okay? I think it's as a result of his living with them that they saw who Paul really was, the man. And Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla, were transformed. Could you imagine living with Paul? Working with them all day. Not just hearing them preach but just working with this guy. And then, I mean, because the guy's going to be cutting the, the fabric to make this tents and everything, right? Do you think he was slothful or do you think he was diligent? He's probably very diligent. Do you think he did good work? Probably so. But then when he opens his mouth then to share the word of God, and he is meticulous in the presentation of the word, they wanted to hear it. They wanted to listen. Does it make sense? Okay. So they wound up getting saved, and you can go on, and I'm not going to go through these passages. We'll see some of these next week, okay? Because they follow him. They go with him next week, as we'll talk about the Ephesus, and he actually leaves them in Ephesus to do the work. So in these 18 months, he's going to lead these guys to the Lord. He's going to disciple them, train them, so that they are going to want to being these guys, husband and wife, so that they want to being the focal point of the ministry in the next city. Do you feel a little challenged there? What's your purpose in relationships? What's your goal for your relationship with somebody else? Do you see, want to see them to come to Christ? Do you want to see them to become discipled? Do you have a vision that maybe they might be leaders in the church and that God is using you to train them? I've said this for years. My vision is for every guy in this church to be a pastor. Not necessarily full-time ministry. I don't think that's necessity. But I really do believe in my lifetime that there's a possibility that we're not meeting in these kind of buildings anymore, that we're meeting back in homes. And every single one of you guys have to be prepared to be a shepherd in your neighborhood. An elder is an elder before he's an elder. A deacon's a deacon before he's a deacon. A shepherd's a shepherd before he's a shepherd. Do you get where I'm going with that one? We want titles because that's a matter of pride. But the title only comes to one who actually is already doing it. Or it should only come to the one who's only already doing it. So when that happens, guys, and you need to be shepherding, it's because you already have the heart of a shepherd. Because if you don't have it now, it's not going to happen later. So husbands and wives, men and women, boys and girls, kids of all ages. Anyway, sorry. What's your goal in your relationships? What's the purpose of your relationship with others? Is it kingdom-oriented? Or is it just fleshly-oriented? His evangelism at the synagogue. What's note, before I even get into this approach here real fast, is what I find interesting in this passage is the only place we see Paul evangelizing is 
in Corinth right now is where? In synagogue. We're not told about him being in the marketplace, which I do think he's there based upon his epistle to them, okay? But, but what Luke is writing in summary, because he's not there. Luke's not there. He's coming later. And so he's getting a report, right? And so he wasn't there in, in Athens either. And so what we read about what happened in Athens probably was a report from Paul. Paul stops, changes his tactic in Corinth. He evangelizes in the temple, or in the temple, in the synagogue. But the first thing we see him do is the same thing he was doing in the past, and that is that he was reasoning with them. He debated with them. He sought to teach them, okay, the dialegami, okay, so speaking through, through speaking, okay, that he wanted to be able to, to give them information. But apparently there was something else that was lacking, because after... Silas and Timothy comes, we're told that he was compelled by the Holy Spirit. And in some manner, he upped the game. And he began to speak more boldly. Declaring to them that Jesus is Messiah, the Christ. Christ, Christos, Mashiach, same word, one's Greek, one's Hebrew. So he began to declare to the Jews that Jesus was Messiah. So I have to ask myself the question, what was he saying before that? When he was teaching them, was he just teaching without crossing the line of being divisive? Again, we're going to see in a moment, in a few moments, but anyway, he gets the encouragement from Christ, and Christ says, don't be what? Don't be afraid. Why do you think Jesus said it to him? Because probably he was what? He was being afraid. It's okay, guys. It's okay to admit this about our hero. You know? We, I mean, we want to lift Paul up. Well, I couldn't do that because I'm not like Paul. I mean, Paul had this call. No, Paul struggled. And potentially he was in the synagogue. And he was teaching. He was discussing. He was discoursing. But he hadn't got to that provocative, over-the-edge moment of, and this guy's the Messiah. You need to give your life to him. Because every other time he's done that, what's happened? Say again, Jonathan. There was a riot. The first part is they rejected him, right? And they rejected him so much that he turns around and he says, from this point I'm going to go to the Gentiles, and that's when the riots begin, right? I don't think he's ready to do that. He's not ready to become that, but he's a, he's a teacher. You get it? He's got the gift of teaching. He's got the burden of teaching. He wants people to know the truth. And so he cannot not teach. So he's teaching. And he's teaching the word. It's thrilling. It's exciting. But he's stopping. And I get this. I get it. I knock on doors. But I can be able to yell about a chicken liver. And I, you want to talk and I can disciple you at the door? Oh, I'm so excited about discipling you at the door. But if I got to be confront, confrontational and tell you you're a sinner, you're going to hell, no, I wouldn't necessarily say it that way, but you get where I'm going, right? All of a sudden, I, you know, it's cold. The feet start getting cold. The, 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 you know, I start backpedaling a little bit and say, well, we got this tract right here you can read, you know, because I, I don't want to be the confrontational guy. So I can see that in Paul at this moment. I'm not saying it's right, but I can see it. But after Silas and Timothy come, 
He's got this compulsion of the Holy Spirit. And he knows it's time. The importance, and we'll talk about this in a moment, the importance of us congregating together and holding each other accountable cannot be overstated. For years it was Steve and I knocking on doors, yes? And the reality is that you went because you knew I was going to come. You, knew, you, you went because you knew I was going to be there, right? Let's be honest. Put that mirror, because it's a two-way mirror. I went because, because Steve was going to be there. I didn't want to look bad in front of Steve. Steve didn't want to look bad in front of me, so we both went. But that's what the Word of God talks about. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves, and the more you see the what? The day approaching, right? And provoke one another to love and good works. That's one of the reasons we get together is to do this. We, because inherently, I guess, I, don't, I know we don't want to admit this, but you're a sinner. And you have this desire within you to serve yourself and not God. And so you got to get with a bunch of other people who have a desire to serve God, but they know they're having a desire to serve themselves, and you got to hold each other accountable and say, no, no, you don't want to do that right now. Is that right, Jimmy? Yeah. <laughs> that was your testimony, right? So you get on signal, and you say, guys, I'm struggling. Praise the Lord. I mean, I remember years ago, someone in, coming in previous church, someone coming in and saying, Pastor, I'm struggling with sin right now. I said, praise God. And they said, what? I said, I'm glad you're struggling. I know too many people who ain't struggling. They're just doing it. And then you came in to talk to me about it. It's okay. You don't want to admit it. Why? Because we don't want people to know we're sinners. If you know you're a sinner, put up your hand. Go ahead. This is, this is a safe place. This is a safe place. Isn't that the, way, the world we talk about it today? You're in a safe spot, okay? You're, sorry. Yeah, no. So I'm the only one on, on, on the video, I think. Yeah, yeah. Marsha, Brian, everybody knows. Everybody who watches this knows they, they're going to know that you've admitted it publicly. And it, the rest of you are safe. You're safe. You're, nobody knows it publicly. But it's a reality. I love it. Silas and Timothy show up, Paul becomes bold. He's got somebody watching his back. Just their presence helps him out. I rejoice in the Lord for Steve. We've met almost every week now since 2003. That's accountability for me. I'm going to meet with this guy. You know what I'm saying? And I don't want to put on a show. Now, you can say, well, what about your wife? That's important, too. But the reality is, this guys, let's be honest, right? There's something about having somebody hold you what? Accountable, okay? So praise the Lord for that. All right, evangelism synagogue, what was the response? Well, when he finally becomes bold, <laughs> what happens? Exactly what he knew was going to happen. They reject him. They reject the message. So remember, they rejected Paul, but what did they really reject? They rejected Christ. And Jesus said that. He said, look, when, when, they, when you're persecuted for my namesake, remember, they're not really persecuting you. They're persecuting me. That's easier said than done, though, isn't it? Because I'm the one who what? I'm getting the brunt of that. Okay? But I have to remember that. It's not me. It's not me. It's the message. And it's Christ who they're rejecting at this moment. Okay? But what's exciting is, coming out of that, you got the conversion of Crispus. Who's Crispus? Say again? Who's Crispus? He's the ruler of the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue. So if you were here when we were studying Mormonism, okay, and we talked about the, um, the testimony of 
um, Wilder. Um, Micah, Micah Wilder, right? Micah and his partner were Mormon missionaries down in Florida, and it was raining, and so they didn't really go want to go knock on the door, so they went to a Baptist church because they figured there was a bunch of captive audience there that they can you know, get a bunch of fish saved, right? And, and, and if, you, if you want to really affect all that fish, you got to affect the who? The leader, right? And so they went straight for the pastor and asked to talk to the pastor. Anyways, it was talk, through talking to the pastor, pastor giving them the gospel and challenging them to read the Bible that they wanted getting saved. But the point is, they went for the pastor because they knew if the pastor gets converted to Mormonism, what's he going to do? He's going to lead his flock. Man, they got it all, right? How cool was this? He may be getting rejected, but God was working through him to speak to Crispus. And when Crispus got saved, his whole household got saved. They followed. Isn't that neat? Who was the next ruler of the synagogue? Does anybody know who the next ruler of the synagogue in Corinth was after Crispus? Good job. That's exactly right. We know that from the word, right? Because Sosthenes becomes. Well, that means Sosthenes wasn't a believer, right? And probably he became it, and he was probably just really upset with this whole thing. I can't, you're destroying the work of God here, right? I mean, and so he's really after Paul, right? So we'll see that in a moment, right? Well, Paul then leaves at this moment. He says, okay, I'm done with y'all. But he doesn't say to them, and now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Again, he changes his approach a little bit. He begins what we see, at least in Corinth, to be the first church. And they're going to meet at the house of who? Justice. We're told that, right? So that, this is fun. Where does justice live? Where is that, Marsh? Next. Next to the synagogue. How fun is that, huh? And so when do you think they met? These are a bunch of Jews getting together to worship Yahweh. When do you think they met? On the Shabbat. At the exact same time the Jews were meeting in the synagogue. Isn't this kind of fun? I don't know if you ever thought about that, but I just think this is fun. I just think this is really like in-your-face moment, Okay. And so here they are, they're meeting in Justice's house, and could you, do you think that, I mean, do you think they had windows? Do you think the windows were closed? How good do you think the insulation was? Do you think you could hear the people next door? Do you think the people in the synagogue could hear the people next door worshiping Yahweh? You don't think so? I think they could. I think they could. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in the city. You could hear the toilet flush three doors down. Yeah. Oh, somebody down the chuds are, uh, you know, anyway, so, anyways. You could hear everything in the city, man. I mean, it was just, if you grew up in the city, you get it, okay? So, yeah, I'm sure. They, they, they could hear it next door. I'm sure. This, is, this has got to be driving the Jewish group crazy because the church is growing. And what are they primarily growing from? Converts from Judaism. They're just completed Jews. They're following the Messiah, it's just that the leaders of their group don't want to follow Messiah. So they got to come out from them and be separate. That's 2 Corinthians, by the way, that where he quotes that. Okay? To come out from them, be ye separate. What is light to do with darkness? What is Christ to do with Belial? All these kind of stuff, right? So come out and be separate from them. And so they start their own work, and there they are. And so now all of a sudden, bad things start to happen, right? But before we get there, we look at what Paul did then. He began a new work, right? Separated from the synagogue. 
we're told specifically when they got together, he did what? Exactly what we're doing right now. He taught them the word of God. Which, Sunday school-wise, what does it tell you that Paul believed? That the Old Testament was truth. It was the word of God. It was the truth. And so he says in Acts 20, when we get there, finally, with the, 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 the leaders of Ephesus, he says, I've not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, he taught them through the Bible. He taught them the Bible. Whether he taught them verse by verse or whatever, we're not told that. But we're told specifically he taught them the word of God. The goal would be that they would be prepared themselves to teach others. So he taught them the word of God. And he hung out there for 18 months. I see this from two perspectives real quick. A, just the physical perspective of Paul. God knew he needed what? He needed rest. He needed rest. He needed to hang out someplace for a period of time. So God kept him there for 18 months. God also knew his temperament, his personality, knew how much he loved to teach. So God gave him what? A group of people to, to teach. I taught math. One of those five jobs I had back then was working in a, an academy teaching math. I taught geometry and I taught pre-calculus. If you, so if you're listening ever and you were in one of my geometry class, I apologize for this, but I hated my geometry class. <laughs> no, I love geometry. I hate teaching geometry class because there was a group of kids in there and it got, it, it was huge and it kept being split, right? Because I didn't want so many people in it. But I had kids in there who were only there because they had to take the class. I could tell you the things that happened. It was just driving me bonkers. I love my pre-calculus class, my trigonometry class. Why? Because I had five or six kids in there who didn't have to take it, but wanted to take it. I had a, a, a young man in there who wasn't the rocket scientist by any stretch of the imagination, but he wanted to learn it and was willing. Tutoring is free. You can come anytime you want. The only one who ever took it. He wanted to learn. He wanted to get at least a B. He wasn't content with anything less. Why? Because he wanted to go on. And so he came, and he wanted to learn. And he got a B. He did get a B. He had a high B, but he got a B. And he, I rejoiced in the Lord with him because he earned that B. I didn't give him a B. He earned it. He worked for it. When you're a teacher, you love when people want to learn. Teaching's only fun when people want to learn. It's, it's easy to figure it out when you're starting to teach somebody that someone's really not interested. And at that point, it becomes, I let it go. Because it's, it's going in one ear, not the other, and so all I'm doing is stroking my own ego at this moment by pontificating. So he remained for 18 months with a group of people who wanted to learn, and he wrote two of the largest letters that he wrote or at least recorded as scripture, to these same people. And if you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you'll find that they are probably the, the most practical letters in the entire New Testament as well, where he deals with many, many issues that go on in our personal lives and go on in the church. And so we are Baptistic, we're not Baptists, but we are Baptistic. And when you talk about what a Baptist is, 
the easiest way to talk about what a Baptist is is to use the acronym Baptist, okay, Baptists. So a Baptist, someone who's Baptistic, believes that the Bible is a sole authority for faith and practice. They believe in the autonomy of the local church. They believe in the priesthood of the believer. They believe that there's two primary offices in the church, the spiritual and the, and the, and the uh, physical, so the, the pastor slash elder and the deacons. They believe in individual soul liberty. They believe that there's a saved, regenerate church membership. They believe that there are two ordinances that Christ has given the church, and that is baptism and communion. And then they believe in, that's where I'm heading on this one, separation. And separation is three-part. They believe in governmental, if you would, separation, the separation between the church and the state. They believe in ecclesiastical separation, and that is that, it, that as a church, we separate from false doctrine. But then they also believe in personal separation, that as an individual believer, you also separate from sin. Does that make sense? Okay. When you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you read two treaties that really deal with the concepts of separation. And how does that look like when you're living in the crossroads of culture? Because that's where Corinth was. They were dealing with everything that was going on. And how do you live out Christianity when you got all that going on? I commend you to 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. That's one of my goals one day in life. It'll never happen, but I would love to memorize 1 Corinthians. There's just so much in that book to, to, to bring out. So anyways, edification of believers. Well, his encouragement from Christ. This is huge. The first part is via the brethren, Silas and Timothy. Again, we already talked about this. That before they came, he was timid. He was worn out. After they came, he's full of boldness, right? So he's encouraged spiritually. And you can read 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 6, how Paul was talking again to the Thessalonians at this point, but how he was worried even about them at this point. So he's, he's out and about, and he's seeing all these reactions going on, and he has nobody there to encourage him. So he's starting to think about these other churches. And he's starting to think, well, maybe, you know, because it's taken a long time for Paul and Silas to get to him, right? That maybe, just maybe, all the work that he's done has been in vain. Read First Thessalonians, you'll read that, okay? That's exactly. And so he sends t- Timothy to go get a report, and he's so overjoyed when he comes back, telling him, oh, no, man, the church is thriving, and da-da-da-da-da. And so, you know, it's just an, an encouraging time. And that's what he says to them. He says, you know, even, you know, in, in all of Achaia, they're talking about what happened in Thessalonica. But he was also then encouraged financially. Now, again, this sounds tacky, but Philippians 4, Paul says to the Philippians, he says, now, you Philippians know also how I depart, when I departed from Macedonia, because Philip." Philippi was the chief city of the Macedonians. How I, when I departed from Macedonia, that no other church communicated with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even, even when I was in Thessalonica, you did send once and again unto my necessities. Not that I speak in respect of want. Because God is able to provide what? All things. But I desire for fruit to be abounded to your account. That's from Philippians chapter 4. Paul's basically saying, look, you guys minister to my needs, and he's talking about physically, in order that I could go out and do more ministry. I look back at the beginning of this church when I had those five jobs, and I think to myself, how did I ever serve? How did I minister? How did I preach? Do you realize I did this series back in 2007? If you've been here long enough, you're probably saying to yourself, really? I don't remember. That's good. That's, that's a good thing, right? But I can tell you how, many, how much stuff 
I'm, I'm going back to what I did, my studies that I did, and I'm thinking to myself, when did I have time to do that? I didn't have no time to do that. But God is faithful. And so that the more the church was able to give me, the more time I had to what? To study. And so Paul's excited about this. So, so when Silas and Timothy come, I think there's encouragement spiritually, but I think there's also encouragement if you would physically, financially, and that now all of a sudden he's able to do more work. He's now to be able to teach in, in, with, at, at Justice's house more frequently. He doesn't have to make tents as much as he has to, had to before. Okay? He was then also was encouraged via a vision. This is when Jesus speaks to him, right? And he says to him, begins with, he says, fear not. It's a reminder from Joshua. When God spoke to Joshua over and over and over again, he says, fear not, right? Neither be dismayed, right? I'm with you wherever you go. This is just shades of the thing all over this, okay? And so he's saying the same thing to Paul. He says, look, don't worry about it. I've got your back. I'm with you. In fact, Paul, I've got people. I've got a lot of people in this city. You're not going to be hurt here. This is pretty cool. Because in so many cities, Paul has been what? Not just rejected. He's been rejected verbally, but he's been beaten. He's been physically beaten. I mean, to the point where he's left for dead, right? And so, so now he's a little bit, you know, gun shy. And Jesus says to him, he says, let it rip, Paul. Let it rip. I'm not going to let them lay a hand on you in this city. Note what he says, this city. He, he, he for real, all right? He's like, I got I, I, a lot of people in this city. You're not going to be hurt in this city, okay? And so just let it go, let it go. So um, Paul State, probably feeling a little afraid, burnt out. You can read that in 1 Corinthians 2, right? God's message, don't be afraid, right? But I love this observation from Augustine um, that Augustine had commented. He says, um, we are immortal until our work is done. I want you to think about that. While God has a purpose in my life, I cannot die. You cannot kill me. Now, I understand you can't kill me anyway because we be absent from the body of the present Lord, but we're talking about even my existence on the earth. You cannot. I am better than Superman. I mean, the stories that you hear of you know, someone getting shot and you know, the Bible in, in, their, in their coat and, and, the, and the bullet gets stuck in the Bible and stuff like that, and, you know, all kinds of stories. But the fact is that while you have a work for God going on, nothing can touch you. We struggle with it because we struggle with it. Okay? One thing's for sure. When I die... My work on earth, what? It's done. It's finished. God said I was done. Paul said that. He says, look, he knew that his, his end was coming, right? I'd finished my course. I'd run my race. And henceforth, there's laid up for a crown for me. So he knew when his time was coming, he was done. Okay? Peter knew. That's why he wrote that second epistle. He knew his time was done. We're only going to be on the earth for a short period of time. I'm 62. Psalm says I have how many, how many days, Steve? 70 years. And if by strength? 80. I'm 62. Biblically, I got eight years left. If by strength, I got 18. People look at me like, that sounds so morbid. I'm close to being with Jesus. Does it make sense? 
But that means I've got 8 to 18, maybe a little bit more, years to work for Jesus. At the end of those 8 or 18 years, I want to know that they were used. Do you get it? I love Civ, the game Civ. But I don't want to know that I finally made it to the immortal status. There's no eternal glory there. Are you tracking with me? Again, what are you living for? What is your purpose in life? Are you seeking to see people come to know Christ as their Savior, being discipled and developed into serving him with their lives? What's the purpose of your life? You're only living on the earth a short period of time, and you may not even have eight years left. What are you going to do with it? I'm not, I'm, I don't mean that as a, like, smash you down. It's just a reality check. Okay? What are you going to do with it? Via decision by Galileo. Galileo. I love this. I mean, God says, don't worry about this. Then all of a sudden, Sothenes raises up the, the, the Jews against him, right? And, and they drag uh, Justice down before Galileo. They're trying to get Paul down there as well, right? And they're, they're trying to do the exact same thing they've done in the other places. They come and they begin to declare all their, their accusations against him. And Galileo, Galileo says what? You guys get lost. I am not the judge of your religious law matters. You got a problem with, in the civil matters? Bring it. But a matter of your religious law? Get out of here. Well, now all of a sudden, the crowd turns. Because what happens when you get a mob? They become violent and uncontrollable, right? And I love at this moment what God does. Again, I know I'm not that big, big C Calvinist or whatever, but I am a big-ass sovereign guy, you know, that God is still in control of all things. And I think God takes this, this horde and he turns it. Because now all of a sudden, this horde is all worked up. They want somebody's blood. They want to beat somebody, and they want to beat Paul. They want to beat Justice, right? But they can't get him because Galileo says, Galileo says, be gone with you, right? So what do they do? Say it again. They beat Sosthenes. Sosthenes is the guy that riled them all up, brought them all out so he could destroy all this. They turned around, they beat Sosthenes. You know what's so exciting about that? He was beaten into salvation. Yeah, maybe we become like gangs, man. We just do the kicking and beating thing, you know. We'll stop when you get saved. You laugh. I don't mean that. But you get it. But that's what happens. Sothenes, Sothenes gets saved. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul talks about his partner in ministry, whose name happens to be Sothenes. Sothenes gets saved and joins Paul in the ministry. What a cold ministry that was. Two rulers of the synagogue. One begins. We don't read anything else about Crispus, but we read about Sothenes. Sothenes, you could almost call as Paul II in some little manner, right? Because Sothenes wanted to what? Persecute the church. And so God had him taken and turned around, and now the same energy that Sothenes was going to use against the church, now he's using it for the church. It's really kind of cool stuff how God works. So in the end, what's your goal in life? Is it kingdom-oriented? We talked about that a couple times. What are you living for? 
in the end, when you die, they write your epitaph. They write the annals of your life. What do you want people to know about you? What do you want them, how do you want them to remember you? How important is gathering together with other believers to you? You're here. So you say, well, it's important. I'm here. Okay, well, that's a no-brainer. But really, how important is it? You could be here this morning just because you're punching a ticket. I did it for years. Even before we got saved, we went to church. We had two different brands, and so every week we flipped. We went to her brand, and we went to my brand. Her brand, my brand. My brand didn't get a pastor, so we stuck with her brand for a while. Does that make sense? But we didn't go because we knew Jesus. We didn't go because we really wanted to worship God. We went because that's what you did on Sunday morning. Do you really desire to be with other believers? How important is learning and teaching the Word of God to you? Is it ho-hum? Is it something you do even on your own? Or is this like the only time you get fed? Considering your engagement, quote-unquote, with the culture, are you influencing others, or others influencing you, or are you influencing others? In the end, is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. It's true, it's quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. I thank you for the testimony of Paul. Lord, I think back to Saul of Tarsus, who was your enemy, at least in his own mind, and who you loved with an everlasting love, who you died for, whose sins you took upon the cross, and you revealed yourself to him in a mighty way such that he would then serve you. And as you said, he's going he's to have to learn all the things that he's going to suffer for your namesake, and he did. And you caused us to understand it, how hard it was even upon him, Lord. But when we're weak, you become strong. And you did a mighty work in Corinth, and we praise you and rejoice in you for it. Lord, I pray that we would desire for you to do that kind of work in us and through us. Lord, help us to be available, help us to be bold, help us to go out, help us to open up our mouths, that you might fill us with your words, that your name would be glorified. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.